Coming up on today's show, the Summit of the Americas. Well, some of the Americas, Joe Biden has uninvited some. We'll talk about reducing urban crime in our province. It's not just Edmonton. It's not just Calgary, but that's where the majority of the stories are coming from. And how would you feel about a train running between the Calgary airport and Banff? The Summit of the Americas, which um, is kicking off today in Los Angeles. Not as many people there as we've had (laughs) in other years. It it is a summit that brings together a bunch of different countries in North, Central, and South America. Um, But this year, uh, three were asked not to attend or told not to attend by U.S. President Joe Biden. And the term he came up with was less like-minded. Now, that's caused all kinds of issues, uh, including in our country. Jagmeet Singh saying, yeah, no, this kind of exclusionary process is not a good idea. Some other countries have said, well, if they can't come, we're not going. And our prime minister, though, has been been fairly quiet on the whole situation. So let's get into this a bit. We're going to chat with Paul Knox now, a professor emeritus at Toronto Metropolitan University. Um, Mr. Knox, thanks so much for your time. appreciate you joining us. Happy to be here. Okay, so let's get a breakdown on Summit of Americas. It's it's countries from, well, from the Americas, just like it sounds, but um, how often does it happen, and, and, and what's the focus of it? What's it about? Well, it started uh, way back, um, I guess, way back in the 1990s, actually. I think it was the first President George, uh, the first George Bush, who can be the first one. And uh, the idea was that, um, you know, it was uh, the Americas constituted a, a real, uh, a really important uh, zone globally, uh, you know, like Europe, uh, Asia, uh, East Asia, South Asia, Africa, and so on, and um, and that there was a real common interest in having them get together uh, uh, every every so often. Um, uh, there is a body called the Organization of American States where they do meet, but that's not the leaders. That's just ambassadors, okay. diplomats. So the idea was that the leaders should get together, and they happen every. Uh, they have happened every four or five years, uh, and um, you know the, the they were first of all. I think Bush's first idea and everybody's first idea was that there would be, would be a free trade zone. Uh, in the Americas, uh, something like NAFTA, but for the entire America as well, that didn't really happen. And um, uh, since then, that that it, it's lost. That you know, the the fact that that didn't happen it means that they've kind of lost a, a little bit of steam. But um, it's still an important. Uh, you know, there 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 are common issues and. Uh, um, and it uh, was a good opportunity yeah. for them all to get together. It, I mean, I'm sure there's definitely, you know, common issues that they could address. Now, of course, as we're talking about this, we've got three countries that have been excluded, Cuba, Venezuela, and I think Nicaragua was the third one, um, by U.S. President uh, Joe Biden saying, please don't come. Has that ever happened before, and why did he decide to take this step? If I'm not mistaken, Cuba never uh, never was uh, present. Okay. Um, uh, the idea was that they were all supposed. It was supposed to be all the demo, quote democratic unquote countries of the Americas, and so uh, you know, uh, recently, um, uh, you know, in the last ten years or so, ten fifteen years, uh, Venezuela and 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 then Nicaragua have become um, quite uh, have gone uh, taken quite a leftward turn. More so, I would say, in Venezuela's case, in Nicaragua, it's a little bit more of a a dictatorial turn yeah. uh, on the part of the, the president Daniel Ortega. Um, Venezuela is much more uh, an ideological um, shift uh, toward 
uh, toward the left, toward socialism, and uh, has taken, you know, uh, many actions that have prejudiced American interests, American companies, uh, oil companies principally, um, that uh, used to operate in Venezuela and no longer do. And, um, you know, so that's the primary motivation, and it's uh, hard to, you know, justify it, I think, because as as difficult as those, those countries may be from the Americans' perspective to deal with, they have a lot more affinity with uh, the rest of the countries uh, in Latin America. Lots of them have elected uh, in recent times um, more left-wing presidents, uh, uh, Chile, Peru, um, Bolivia, and uh, possibly upcoming Brazil and maybe even Colombia. And um, uh, I should add Mexico as well. Mm -hmm. And they're not as opposed to Venezuela as the Americans are. Uh, So, uh, uh, you know, I I mean, it's it's a little bit of a slap in the face to everybody. Right. Well, that's the thing. Please don't come. Yes. So, I mean, and a lot of countries, like you mentioned, Mexico, they've actually said, okay, well, if they're not coming, we're not going. So exactly. a rift you know, seems to be developing. I mean, either it's a summit or it isn't a summit. I mean, if right. you don't want to have it, don't have it. But, you know, the idea, I mean, this is the whole the whole point of the thing. There's lots of other forums where they can exchange views, uh, you know, not at the leadership level, but, you know, country to country. The point of this is to get all the letter, leaders together in one room and try and decide on things, what they can agree on together. And if you, they're not going to do that, um, it's difficult to see what the point is. Um, does it sort of, I mean, like you say, a summit, you would bringing it together of all of the parties, but it seems to me like it's almost like um, the United States summoning the colonies, if you will, kind of a thing. Like, exactly. clearly they see themselves as being uh, the shot caller here. First among equals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. And, of course, uh, historically, um, they have been to a large, they were to a large extent, um, with the um, demise of the military governments that they supported and in some cases uh, essentially put in place, um, there was supposed to be a, re- a generalized return to democracy in the Americas, and there was, in fact, uh, a, a quite a dramatic um, turn in the 1980s and 1990s. And, uh, uh, you know, and the point was to build on that and, uh, you know, not only... Um, not only talk about common issues, but actually do things like try to develop institutions that might uh, make it easier for these democracies to endure, which has been very, very difficult uh, over the last really 200 years, partly because of the tremendous amount of influence that the Americans wanted to exert on the region. So, you know, you're either in favor of uh, trying to build something Uh, in this, uh, you know, harmonious, uh, uh, you know, leadership way, or um, you're going to do it, go back to doing it, uh, go back to protecting your your narrower interests in the way that, uh, you know, that uh, the United States and other uh, world powers uh, were more accustomed to in the past. So, so you know, I mean, uh, it, it, and to... To sort of say don't come um, is like I don't I don't see why that's necessary. I mean, right. uh, you know, I just don't see why it's necessary. I mean, it should be possible to. Uh, I mean, other countries are not. You could say, well, they would be disruptive, 
if that's true, everybody who would come also has an interest in that not happening. And there are other countries who would be a lot more uh, better positioned to put pressure on them than than the Americans would. So, uh, you know, I just just see it as a, a kind of leadership and diplomatic faux pas on Biden's part. Um, what's Canada's role in all of this? Can, if Trudeau's been fairly quiet. Singh said some things. Do we need to make more of a, a fuss about the fact that these these countries weren't included? Should Canada have opted out of the summit? I, I wish we would. Well, I don't. I, I I I'm not sure I'd be in favor of not going, but I wish we would make more of a fuss. But I also wish we would have made more of a fuss all along. I mean, you know, Canada was a a, a very strong promoter of the. Um, the uh, many initiatives to uh, you, know, you know to promote the idea of democracy in the Americas, and um, but recently um, other regions have taken a lot more uh, you know have, have assumed a lot more prominence in our foreign policy, and we have also been quite critical of uh, both, uh, particularly Venezuela, um, but also Nicaragua, and whether that's necessary or not. I, um, you know, I, I, it's always been hard for Canada to forge its own mm-hmm. um, course of action, its own pathways in the Americas. We are overshadowed very much by the U.S. It's also always been difficult for us to uh, develop a profile that's, you know, significantly different from the Americans. And uh, we look like them, we talk like them. Uh, we don't always think with uh, like them, but um, we have to keep reminding ourselves of that. And uh, you know, I, I I have to say also that both countries, both Canada and the U.S., have taken a lot less interest in uh, this region um, in I would say the past ten years or so, and, and um, you know, than 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 other parts of the world. There may be good reasons for that, but. Um, certainly the Americas have not been a huge part of our foreign policy, anything south of, uh, you know, south of Texas. Um, and, and uh, you know, I think we're seeing possibly the fruits of that in now. Uh, there might have been a time when we might have been able to influence, exert some influence on the Americans precisely not to take this kind of rash and counterproductive step. Um, I hope that we could... Uh, could or really would care to um, exert that influence at the moment. Hmm. Interesting. Um, Professor Knox, thanks so much for your time. appreciate you joining us today. It's an issue that's uh, facing Edmonton and Calgary equally uh, in somewhat different ways, but there's a lot of similarities for sure. Violent crime, it's, it's in the headlines and a lot of pressure on city council and police services in both of the cities. You know about Edmonton. Um, the minister, Justice Minister Tyler Shandro, uh, got involved, sent a letter to Mayor Amarjeet So He said, you need to take a mer- uh, immediate action to, quote, combat alarming levels of crime in the downtown, nearby Chinatown, and on transit. And that has to be shared by the with the province within two weeks. Well, the two weeks is up tomorrow. So we're awaiting the report um, and the response. Now they've met. The mayor did meet with the minister and they had some very fruitful discussions, they said. Meanwhile, in Calgary yesterday, city council received a a presentation from the police service there saying that violent crime levels in Calgary uh, and on the C train in Calgary have reached five-year highs. That was in 2021 and they've continued to climb through 2022. Um, Shootings, 62 of them 
in Calgary by the end of last month, there was 35. That was the average over the previous five years. So it's more, it's almost double the number of shootings. Violent crime way up, severity of crime way up in both cities. Uh, and it's it's a big situation. So so what do we need to do about it? We're going to have a discussion about that now. We're going to be chatting with Dr. Ritesh Narayan, who's a criminologist at Mount Royal University. Dr. Narayan, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. It's my pleasure. Good morning to you. So when we take a look at this, obviously... It, we can't, I mean, there's a lot of focus on city police in Edmonton. They just had a big discussion about the budget there yesterday. We know Shandro got involved with the mayor saying they need to come up with a plan, but clearly it's not just Edmonton if it's happening in Calgary as well. So if you take a look at what's going on in Alberta, are you surprised? Are you shocked? Has something gone awry? Yes, uh, and, and we've had this uh, a discussion before, Shay, um, and sadly, the problem has only gone worse uh, because what we do know, what law enforcement knows, what different levels of government knows is the problem. They have been given solutions, and sadly, no one's acting on the solutions or there's not enough resources on the solutions. Also, I think the problem uh, is not just a Calgary and Edmonton Problem. It is a problem for a lot of the municipalities. So I'm out here in Chastimir, which is uh, literally just minutes away from, from Calgary. Um, right, yeah. And we are seeing the same issue with the respect to property crime and also violent crime um, increase in the smaller municipalities um, as well. Okay, so it's not even just the big cities that are seeing this. Now, when we take a look at the way it's being responded to, let's start with uh, from the biggest agency down. Uh, the Justice Minister sending a letter to Mayor Sohi in Edmonton saying, I want to report back within two weeks. What is the jurisdictional breakdown when it comes to this? As Justice Minister in charge of policing, obviously they do have some jurisdiction here, right? Yeah, this, this, this certainly do. I mean, uh, Albertans can uh, write to uh, their ministers and express the concerns. And then those concerns are then uh, translated down to uh, uh, other levels of government. Uh, it is uh, somewhat unorthodox for ministers to uh, be reaching and making that and taking that approach. Um, you know, obviously, Minister Sandra thought that this was very a very pressing matter that he wanted to to address. Um, I mean, there's different ways of doing it. He could have contacted city council directly. Mm-hmm. Uh, he decided to take this approach. And then that, that's on, you know, you know, totally his decision as to how he wants to operate. But I, I guess one thing, you know, we definitely take away from this is that this is something that concerns um, all of Albertans. Exactly. Yeah. And I think, you know, to, to, to his credit, the mayor in response said, you know what, this is a complex issue. This isn't just about policing. Um, We know we've come through the pandemic and things have changed a lot. We know the cost of living. Are we seeing other societal pressures, Doc, that may be contributing to, I guess you'd call it a crisis, like you say, it's in smaller communities like yours, Calgary, Edmonton, right Mm -hmm. across the province. Um, He says it's nuanced. It's more than just pointing a finger at police and saying we need more police officers. There's more addiction, mental health issues, housing issues, all those sorts of things. So how do they all work together? A hundred percent. I totally agree with uh, with the mayor of Edmonton in, uh, in his statement. They, because crime prevention, remember, is not a police issue only. Crime prevention is the responsibility of law enforcement, of the different levels of government and society, you and I. So how it's becoming more challenging is with new nuances such as there's a concept called emotional desensitization where people just become desensitized. So we have seen a number of violent 
uh, crimes out in the States. We, our proximity plays a very important role in the sensitization whereby people are not as sensitive to the crimes, even offenders are not sensitive to acting violently, which is why, you know, we see as uh, violent crime increases in the U.S., so does in, in Canada. Whenever we see, whenever there's uh, mass shootings, it is followed by a number of other mass shootings, which is yeah. clearly evident in the States. So it's that, and you've also identified uh, social issues, poverty, social inequality. Now, these things are not new things. However, not much is being done. If you remember, uh, only a couple of years ago, the city of Calgary had set up a crime prevention task force. I was on the task force. We came up with some amazing recommendations to city council. I'm just not sure how many of those recommendations have been acted on. So I think uh, the groundwork has been done. What needs is, is, is actual action. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you. What is the resolution? What are the recommendations, the task force? What did you come up with as a methods to try and address this? Yeah, so uh, so there's three parts to it. One is, of course, uh, what um, the city can do uh, and that uh, what the city and the province can do. And that is, of course, address, uh, addressing addictions, poverty, social inequality. You address these three things, you'll be able to address majority of the issues that we are seeing today. Um, the second part is, again, funding, and that has to come from uh, the, the city and, uh, and uh, largely by the province as, as well. I mean, if the minister felt that this is a major issue and has written to the mayor, I think it should be then followed by support to the municipalities in order to address these issues, because you don't need to teach law enforcement how to do the job. They know how to do the job. But it's difficult when they're stretched with resources. And uh, I may sound like, you know, a broken record, but no, resources are very expensive. Putting boots on the ground are very expensive. And police uh, departments, uh, they, they need the resources, the, the manpower. And then the third part to it is uh, crime prevention through environmental design, what you and I can do. Um, I think if... As an example, majority of, you know, in Calgary, most of the car theft happens in July and August. And uh, what is it that, you know, we're going to do? So I think residents can at least address the uh, property crime issue just by being vigilant and being responsible. Um, and But then the other part has to do with uh, contribution from um, the different levels of different government. Different levels, yeah. And, of course, and, yeah. And, and you can't just point to one level of government. That That's no. just not going to work. Great, uh, great information, Doctor. I really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thanks, Shay. That is Dr. R- uh, Ritesh Narayan, who is a criminologist um, at Mount Royal University in Calgary. And an interesting idea has been in the news this week. It's uh, it's not a new idea. I'm sure you've heard of it before. Um, but it seems to be getting closer and closer to a possible reality. It's a proposed rail line that would connect Calgary to Banff. It's now been kicked into the court of the provincial government waiting to see whether or not they'll jump in with uh, a group of investors and developers and um, make this thing actually happen. There's a lot of support. Calgary Chamber of Commerce thinks it's a great idea. Banff 
thinks it's a great idea. There's a lot of people who really like the idea. So let's find out exactly how it would work. We're going to chat now with Jane Waters, who is the managing director of Lyricon Capital. Uh, Jan, I'm sorry. Jan, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate you joining us. Thank you very, very much. It's a pleasure to be uh, to be included on your show this morning. It's a really interesting idea. As I say, it's not new. It's been talked about for a while, but it sounds like it's getting quite close. So just walk us through what it would look like if it does go ahead as you envision it and it's built according to plan. What would it be? Yeah, so there are kind of five phases to the development of this project. And right now we're at the start of phase four, and stage five is construction. So to your point, we're, we're very, very close. And what, what we're proposing is a 150-kilometer commuter and tourism train on a new dedicated line. And that part is really important because it ensures on-time service, which is why in 1990 passenger rail travel was discontinued in the first place because it was sharing the track right. with freight. Um, and secondly, kind of what makes it very unique is it's built entirely within the CP Rail corridor uh, and the airport lands, and it has seven destinations uh, from the airport to in Cal- Calgary, then Cochrane, Morley, Canmore, and Bath. And it would leave the airport every 10 minutes or 10 or 15 minutes to downtown Calgary, and then from Calgary to Bath every one to two hours. So, you know, it, it is it is special in that it, it would really do two things. One, be a commuter train that's super affordable, so $20 from Calgary to Bath or $10 from the airport to downtown Calgary. So super affordable. Okay. But it's also the pricing would be um, a, a little bit different for the tourist economy. So those are the groups that are coming in from out of province. So there the prices would be about $40 from Calgary to Bath. Still a price point that most people would see as achievable. Yeah, I, I, I would think so. Um, in terms of the timeline, like you say, you're sort of now you're approaching construction phase. How far away is this if the province comes? I mean, is this something we could see in the next... 5, 10, 20 years? What's the timeline? Oh, definitely. So we submitted what's called, uh, the Alberta government's name for this is called an enhanced unsolicited proposal to the Alberta government, which really laid out the plan and all of the financing and our and with our partners, Plenary Americas. And we submitted that on November 30th of 2021. And uh, what we need now is the go-ahead to move to this uh, phase four, which is really the design phase, where you get really specific engineering drawings to give you a really firm cost, as well as you do more formal and extensive community consultation. And that requires, why it's a, a really important stage, is it does require an investment uh, from the province to do that work. Uh, in total, the cost is $30 million, and Canada Infrastructure Bank, uh, my, my company, Lyricon and Plenary, are paying $20 million of that, and we're looking for the province to, uh, to give us $10 million to, to, to do that work. Um, and that is, a, that is a Canada Infrastructure Bank requirement. So that is what we're waiting for. And those studies, if, if we got the nod tomorrow, uh, those studies and community consultation would likely be about eight months to perhaps 12 months uh, in the field. And then assuming 
that goes well, then it'd be about three years for approval and construction. And the reason it's so uh, fast um, is because we would be building within the corridor. So this is this is brownfield site, right? Like we're not having to buy houses or farmland, right. et cetera. It's right in the corridor, which makes it cost-effective as well as very timely. Couple of questions then. Um, first of all, the cost, you're, it's $10 million from the province, but isn't there also some involvement in, in further funding around the mortgage? What's the total cost to taxpayers on this? You, you got it. So the total cost, the capital cost to build the uh, track, which is essentially the twinning of the existing CP rail freight uh, line track, is about $1.5 billion dollars. Half of that money is coming from the Canada Infrastructure Bank federally. And then the other half is being financed by my firm's plenary and chartered banks. So there's no cost up front from the province to build the line. There's also no cost from the province to operate the train, which is actually very unusual. Um, The cost for the province is in paying half of the mortgage interest rate, which is kind of for principal and interest um, for the over the life of the train, which uh, uh, the um, the agreement is about 50 years. And so that that works out to about $30 million uh, per uh, per year. And to give it a little context really fast here, you know, every uh, every mass transit um, uh, vehicle is supported by various levels of government throughout North America. And usually, uh, almost always, uh, government is supporting the operating costs, about 50% on average, the operating co- cost. And in our case, they wouldn't pay anything. But in most instances, like on Via Rail, they, they are supporting on average 50% of the operating cost. And then secondly, the, um, they're, they're also having to uh, supply up front all of the capital costs to build what, you know, whether it's a train or a bus, et cetera. So we're making this super cost effective. And most importantly for the taxpayer, if this train doesn't work, like if it's a bomb and we go bankrupt and no one wants to ride it, there's no liability for the province, meaning they're walled off from any downside. Um, and so the maximum cost to them is $30 million a year, and it could be less if the train is really successful. So we share that upside with them. It could end up being $22 million a year, as an example, and the max would be $30 million a year. So we've really de-risked the project so that would be it would be really appealing to the Alberta government. And at the same time, we're making it super cost-effective so that we can get people to work and have Albertans use it as a way to access the mountains so that we can try to uh, reduce the amount of congestion in Banff National Park, which is really how my husband and I got involved in this project in the first place. Yeah, and and you already have uh, the mayor of Banff saying the exact same thing. This could really, really help uh, deal with congestion. we're really hoping. You know, my husband and I have lived in Banff for uh, 25 years, and, you know, during that time, we, like, you know, so many in Bath have said, you know, what are they going to do about it? And then one day we asked ourselves, well, who is this they anyways? Is it, you know, federal, provincial, municipal? It was very vague because it's a national park. And so we got involved in 2015, really seeing ourselves as kind of 
private sector catalysts and see if we could push on government to get this train to come to fruition. So as you said, we're, we're very close. We're not there yet. We need the, you know, we need the Alberta government to give us the nod so that we can go to the stage four and uh, and hopefully uh, bring this uh, project over the finish line. Okay, uh, last question. Just help me understand, you're using the corridor that already exists, so is there, is there any issues with national park development or working with the rail lines? I mean, that's all been squared away? Well, we do have uh, Lyricon, my family business, does have a what's called a Memorandum of Understanding, an MOU with CP Rail. We have to, in this next stage, really uh, give them the comfort that their freight service would not be disrupted, because that is obviously important, not just to them, but to all Canadians, to make sure that their goods and services arrive on time. So that piece will be, uh, once we are able to do that with CP Rail uh, and work out some of the pinch pinch points and some of the issues around the line, uh, we, th- we think we're going to be ready to go. Uh, but we can't, we can't, you know, give that a hundred percent nod yet until we get these additional studies done, which will be in the stage four design phase. Interesting. Okay, Jan, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Uh, I, I really appreciate you having us on your show. Thank you so much. Yeah, we'll follow this along. That is Jan Waters, the managing director of Lyricon Capital, and uh, one of the driving forces behind this proposed, and as you hear, quite close to being shovel ready project to bring a rail line that runs from the Calgary airport out to Banff. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.